Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. I'm so glad to have you with me for this conversation today. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly. Today's episode centers around grief, and I'm joined by Dr. John Deloney. John is here to share with us a little bit more of an understanding of really what grief is, but also why it is so essential for us to grieve when we have experienced trauma and how it can help us to find healing on the opposite side. Something exciting is in the works, and we are adding a new segment to the Christian Single Moms podcast in which we'd like to feature you. On our website, you can record a question that you'd like to have answered or share something that God has been teaching you in this season. Submissions can be anonymous and may be played right here on the Christian Single Moms podcast. For more details, check out the link down in the show notes. Something I've learned in my season as a single mom is that loneliness actually does not have that much to do with being alone. Hurt from our relationships in the past causes us stress around relationships in the present. And the ways that we have learned to deal with that stress can help us to feel safe, but actually keep us away from the meaningful relationships that we desire. To start to unravel this, to identify your stress style and discover the pathway to healing, you can take our quiz called What's Your Stress Style? And you'll find a link for that down in the show notes. For a time, it can be easy for us to avoid grieving and to escape our grief, but it always seems to catch up with us. And on the one hand, some of us know exactly what we're doing to avoid grief. And on the other, there may be things that we're doing that we have no idea are actually keeping us from entering into it. And something I think is so helpful about this conversation with John is the fact that he helps us to see where those things could be, but then gives us some alternatives to safely enter into this process. Here's my conversation with Dr. John Deloney. John, it's great to have you with me again. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. John, I'm excited for this conversation because processing through trauma is something that all of us are doing. And I find from my own experience that grief is so critical to moving through the things that we've had to deal with and we might still be dealing with, but it is a really scary part of this entire process. And sometimes it's just, we don't know where to start and we're afraid that we're going to get stuck there. But I have found that having some words around what it is that we're dealing with, what we're trying to get to really helps us to kick things off. So I wanted to know if you would start us off with an understanding of a really good definition of grief. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I, I'm a thousand percent with you. Grief is, is the cornerstone. Uh, there's just no movement forward without it, unfortunately. Um, I, I define grief this way. Grief is the gap between what I hoped for or what I wanted to happen and reality, what actually did happen. And, and that can be as little bitty as I really wanted Mexican food. And then my wife hopped in the car and she's like, I'm not eating another taco this week. We're going to get burgers. And there's a little bit of me that went, well, I, oh, so my, what, what I want doesn't matter, right? Mm. If I start down that road, I can, I can get pretty resentful pretty quick, right? Or I can just go, man, I really wanted uh, Mexican food. And now I can move on with making choices about what I'm going to think about, what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to choose to not <laughs> be a baby, right? All the way into um, today on my show earlier, having some hard conversations with some uh, parents who'd lost kids and that level of grief. I, I wanted, I wanted my kid to do my funeral, not the other way around. Right. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. thought my relationship was going to last forever. I married this guy, you know, till death did us part. And then he laughed. Right. So grief is just that gap between what I hoped for and what I wanted and what actually happened. And when it comes to trauma, you know, 
I know y'all talk about this on the show a lot, but trauma is just our body when when something or an environment overwhelms our response systems and our body just puts a pin in it and says, I remember this story. And so every time I think I see this story, I'm just going to activate the systems again. And what grief does is it brings our bodies from the past. That's always solving, 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 trying to make sure that nobody gets hurt again. Nobody leaves me again. Nobody leaves me again. Nobody ever hurts me again to the present, which is I'm safe now and I'm okay here. And we have to acknowledge what happened. And only then can we be about what tomorrow is going to look like. John, why do you think acknowledging what has happened is so difficult for us sometimes? Oh, man. Oh, it hurts so bad. It hurt. Uh, there's nothing more terrifying than the mirror, right? Like it's, you look at that kitchen table and he's gone, right? Mm-hmm. You look at that um you walk by that bedroom that you set up for that kid and you've been trying to have kids for four years and you still can't have a kid. And um, for whatever reason, and there's just nobody in there, right? There's, there's that grief and it's, we don't want to sit in reality. And so we've got so many options and so many um, shiny toys and clicks and so many bells and whistles these days to distract us that we've really lost the skill of sitting in that hurt for a season um, we just have too many things to distract us. And we have a, a cultural ethos that says run faster, go faster, mm-hmm. go faster, go faster, go achieve, go, go win, go do those things. And then you don't have to deal with the hurt. And the reality is our bodies will keep solving for that hurt, whether we're thinking about it or not. Mm. You said something really important here too. You just pointed to story being really central to parts of this trauma recovery journey. And I think that my fascination with grief comes from the fact that the narrative that I had around my own life story was that it was not appropriate to be sad, that Mm -hmm. I had so much or that these things were good, or at least it wasn't like this person or whatever it was that I convinced myself that there was something unrighteous or just not good about being sad. And so for decades, my grief or what I needed to grieve was completely hidden even from me because the story I was telling myself did not fit reality. And in that, when our stories don't match the reality of what we're experiencing, then we are continuing to find ourselves in those loops of just repeating those same things over and over because that grief demands satisfaction. It demands that attention be paid to the things that were not right. But I did find freedom in being able to say, you know what? God actually says that these things that happened were not right, that this was not according to the design that he had for us at the, at the start at the garden. And in recognizing that really what I was doing was coming into agreement in my own story, mm-hmm. it was the space where I was able to recognize it in that sitting in the sadness though, that I was held, I was not Mm. unsafe, but that is something that if we have a a history of avoiding our grief, Mm. whether we're aware of it or not, sometimes we're not really sure what it is that we're moving towards. Can you talk about the avoidance of grief though? And, you know, in the cases where we're either totally aware of it or unaware of it, what are the patterns that we fall into that are keeping us from sitting in it? Yeah, man, that's a lot there. Um, I'm going to start with this. You mentioned the stories we tell ourselves, and uh, I just wrote a whole book on those stories. Here's here's the thing about those stories. The stories we tell ourselves come from two places, the stories we were born into and the stories we were told by other people. Those are the stories that become our voices. And so if you find yourself in a world where you're a peacekeeper, that your job is to make sure everybody else is okay. And that, you know, you're, yes, you're hurting, but you're fine. Just get over it. Or yes, you're hurting, but look how bad they have it. So they need your attention and all of your money and all of your time and energy and resources. And you just need to get over yourself or yeah, you really want to have a different kind of date do too, but he works really hard. And so I'm going to make sure that he's taken care of before I, right. Or you got three kids or nine kids or how many kids got around. What you really need to do is to pull that string and find out where that started. And usually it started in the stories we were born into, which said, like, depending on what church you went to, they told you in here, 
women, y'all need to fill in the mm-hmm. blank. Mm-hmm. Y'all sit right here and be quiet. Y'all go over there and need to do this. Or women go in the craft room. It's the men back here making the decisions. That's the way that needs, or whatever it looks like. Yeah. And then it gets like in our family, this is what we do. The guys watch football. The girls go back and do this stuff. The boys are outside talking about boy stuff. The girls make sure the dinner's right. Wait, whatever the picture, and I'm just being, sure. making up yeah. stories here, but yeah. then it rolls to, then the stories your parents told you. And it can either be explicit, like you won't go, no daughter of mine's going to study engineering, right? Or no daughter of mine's going to be a biologist. You need to go be a teacher, like whatever the story is. But most often it's implicit stories, stories like, um, I can't believe you did that. And I'm going to walk away or parents who are out of control or parents who are dumping their emotional like reactivity on their seven-year-old little girl mm-hmm. or you know, so this seven-year-old or nine-year-old or 10-year-old little girl comes to believe that it's her job to make sure dad doesn't get mad. Like she has that level of power and strength over a grown man or that Mm -hmm. it's her job to not make mom um, get too angry or get too sad or get too, if if I say that mom's going to cry, it's my job to make sure mom doesn't cry. No kid can carry that weight. That's too much. And over time, that becomes the story I tell myself. So mom may say, um, oh, honey, you don't want to wear that shirt. That shirt makes you look pudgy. And we want the boys to like us, right? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like nine, right? Yeah. That story becomes, I'm too fat to be loved. I don't look right. Or I'm just not pretty, right? And that's a story you tell yourself when you're 50 or when you're 60 and on and on and on. And so we learn these patterns of avoidance. And we have parents who we learned by watching that the goal is to get good grades, to run really fast or to throw a ball really hard or to dance really well or whatever, whatever performance-based system they needed to make sure they were modeling to the world that they were good parents. And they were really busy and they were running around like bonkers. And so we have no models for what grief looks like. Mm -hmm. And in their defense, they were also told, never fight in front of the kids. Never, if you're sad, go do that in your bedroom, shut the door. That's what our parents' generation was told. And what they did was they robbed us of a picture of what grief looks like. They Mm -hmm. robbed us of a picture of what a disagreement between spouses who love each other looks like. And then they sit down and have dinner together. We miss the disagreement part. So when we had disagreements in our marriages, we think it will crap. It must be over. Then it's all she wrote for us Mm because we don't have any picture of that. Mm -hmm. And we don't know. I didn't know my dad cried when his friend died. I didn't know that because he did it on his own because he was trying to protect me. He was trying to take care of me. What he did was inadvertently, he took away a picture of what grief looks like. So we have no skill set for avoidance, for dealing with the stuff. All we have is avoid, 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 avoid. And then we have a culture that tells us, man, in an effort to solve for comfort, right? I love my leather chair and I love, you know, air conditioning and comfortable things. I got comfortable shoes on right now. I love comfort. But as we've tried to solve for comfort, we've made discomfort evil and we've made it bad. We've made it a problem. And so now we live these 72, 72, 72 lives. We have a 72 degree house and we go to an air conditioned car and we go to a heated workplace and then back. And our bodies aren't designed for that. It's designed to have ups and downs and ups and downs. And we've just pulled the thread and leveled life out. We're, we've just turned our culture into a walking Xanax and we don't hurt as much anymore, but we don't feel anything. Mm. So we have no picture of no, no model. We have no instruction manual for how to deal with hurt. So all we have is avoid, avoid, avoid. And it's unfortunate. And I get it because sitting in hurt hurts, right? It's not yeah. fun. Yeah. But it's the only it's the only way to move forward. Well, and I think some of what keeps us stuck backwards too, as you alluded, a lot of this comes from our relationships with our parents. Mm-hmm. And that can run the spectrum from parents who were neglectful, who were abusive, or who were very self-absorbed to also the other end of the spectrum where very often it's kids having kids. It's parents who are immature and are passing on generational patterns that, as you said, this was passed down. There were no models, just lock it up, shut it down, go keep, you know, pushing forward. And I think it's important to mention that because that means trauma is going to come from literally any kind of family structure, that there's nothing uniquely weird about you that you have maybe other traumas though, that have come from other things that have happened in your life but that they can all be pulled back to some of these things that happened 
from our earliest it's, years. It's, it's the best worst news. <laughs> it's that you're not alone and that right. we all have trauma, right? right? So I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but yeah. we've all got it, right? Yeah. And how, however big, and it's important here, um, and you mentioned this earlier, comparing trauma is 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 maybe one of the biggest no-nos on, on, in, in our life, in our lives. Don't ever compare trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard it a lot during COVID. I got really sick for two weeks and my kid missed the first week of kindergarten and my son, I thought I was going to have to go to ICU, but he's okay. But at least I didn't lose my job. And then I talked to my friend who lost her job. And I'm like, yeah, I lost my job. I don't know what we're going to do. I got like a month's worth of savings and then we're going to be out. I'm going to try to figure out Uber Eats. But at least my dad's not in ICU like Tim's dad. And then you, t- right? So everybody was just taking this major stuff in their house and squashing it yeah. because we feel like grief and pain have like some zero. Like if I hurt, then I'm taking your ability hurt. And that's just simply not true. All of us have pain and all of us have hurt and comparing that with one another. is just no good. It it doesn't, it doesn't make you hurt any less. Yeah. And it doesn't help me at all. Right. So feel your hurt man, and, and, and that's the only way through it to heal. I think there's a, also a complicating factor in some of these things too, that we feel perhaps if we choose our own hurt, if we choose the version of our story where actually something did happen to us at the hands of somebody else that perhaps we're even being disloyal. And so again, whether that's, well, I'm being disloyal as a friend because I'm now I'm more worried about myself than this person's trauma. Or if it's at the hands of those parents, it was like, oh, well, they did the best they could or you know that kind of stuff that we are wired for connection, but sometimes things can go so far in the, the wrong direction when it comes to these things that we also forget how important it is to have a an experience of reality that we we are fully present and awake to what's happened to us and that mm-hmm. is difficult because to be fully alive means full joy full pain it's the full range of everything but that when we do have though this grasp on reality as it is and not as we'd like it to be or as it might be from somebody else's shoes that gives us a, I feel like a starting point though, to start just getting clarity around these experiences that we're having, but then how that fits into maybe the whole narrative of our lives and where things are going and how we fit with the people who are around us, rather than feeling like this is a thing that shuts us off from the people that are around us. That's right. There is, there's no more unifying, I hate this about life, but it just is. There's no more unifying characteristic is that we're all going to die, right? Mm. We all, it doesn't end well for any of us. And let's just reverse engineer that. A hundred percent of us will experience loss. A hundred percent of us will experience hurt. A hundred percent of us will have to go to the doctor. And instead of avoiding that, let that be connective tissue of our relationships, right? Mm. That if you go back to the church, I mean, he says, I'm not here for the healthy. I'm here. I'm, I'm a hospital. I'm here for those who are hurting. Yeah. And we're all hurting. And so let's not hide that from one another. Let that be the, what binds us together, right? Mm-hmm. We go to, let's don't go to church on, I guess on Zoom now, but let's don't walk into a building on Sunday pretending that everything's okay. Let that be the place where we can drop our shoulders and say, I'm not okay. I'm so glad you're here because I know you're not either. Let that be what brings us together, right? Not that we whine around and whining and complaining and, and moaning about everything. No, 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 no. I'm talking about true, authentic, this is a place I can exhale and hang my head mm-hmm. and say, yeah, me too. Yeah. John, practically speaking. So if we do though have patterns of where we've been unaware or we've numbed out, or we've run from grief, those types of things, entering into grief can seem so foreign and it can seem like something that maybe we don't even know how to start engaging. Don't even know what we're supposed to grieve. What can you practically point to as some ways that we can start to explore those things? I think one of the most, man, if you listen to my show for 30 seconds, um, <laughs> I, I find myself almost every other caller now. Um, I have not found a more powerful tool than sitting down and writing letters with, not with a computer either. I'm, I'm, I'm real big on the kinetic importance of getting out a pen and a piece of paper and writing a letter to your 14 year old self and letting her know that what happened to her in that locker room should not have happened and that you're so sorry writing a letter to your kid that passed away and letting them know that you love him and you're going to miss him. And here's all the things you wish. I wish I'd gotten to go to your wedding and I wish I'd gotten to go see you graduate, but I'm going to let you go. 
and or I'm going to write a letter to my dad who was abusive or to my mom who left us. I'm going to write letters. And what that does is it takes all of this swirling energy. And this energy isn't woo-woo. This energy is cortisol and adrenaline and these stress hormones that just pulse through our veins for year after year after year because our bodies are fighting and fleeing everything, right? And so I'm going to write these letters. And what those letters do for our bodies is it lets our bodies know, oh, he's back in the driver's seat now. He's back online. Mm -hmm. And there is seasons in my life when I've been so anxious or running so low that I have to be honest that I'm not seeing things clearly. And that is why community is so, so important. Um, the number of times I've called a friend and said, here's how I'm seeing this. Am I right? And they'll say, I, I don't really know what you're talking about. Delaney, you should probably go talk to somebody. And I've got knuckleheaded buddies. One of them owns a, runs an HVAC company and the other's a banker. And I got a buddy who like works at insurance. Another guy like, I don't know, like works in retirement or whatever. These are not therapists and these are not, you know, savants by any measure, mm -hmm. but they're just guys that I trust to say, mm, that doesn't sound right. Or when I, before I quit being a dean of students at a university, and I took this job here. I flew out to Texas and met with a couple of buddies and said, Hey, here's what I'm thinking about doing. And they said, you're insane. And this is exactly right. Mm -hmm. And I said, are you, like, are you serious? And they're like, yeah, this, like your whole life has led up to this. And so I couldn't see it. I was in the thick of it. And so having people around you that you trust, that you can be vulnerable and open and honest with and say, am I seeing this right? And they'll say, no, you're not. Um, you still blame yourself for the loss of your marriage and it's not your fault. Or maybe you played 50% role in it. And that was seven years ago. And now you're choosing to not heal. Hmm. Now you're choosing to sit in it instead of putting a, the pin down and saying, I'm going to stop trying to edit that old sentence. I'm going to pick up a new pin and write something different. Um, I'm just going to live in it and loop and loop and loop and loop. So those two things, writing letters and talking to other people, sometimes that other person's a professional, it's a counselor, it's a therapist, it's a pastor. And I'll be honest, I'm pretty hard on pastors. There's a lot of pastors that intentionally don't get training. Mm -hmm. And I've had to personally clean up some of the messes that when they tell people overly um, simplistic and responses to some major trauma in people's lives. And it's really frustrating. Um, if you have a pastor in your life that has gotten the right training and that is a person of integrity that you can go to and you trust. I think that's super important too, but going to talk to other people and getting external input on some of the stuff that you're experiencing. This was a place actually where I found mentorship was probably one of the most critical things for me in grieving with somebody. And God just orchestrated things that I met a woman through church who had been through a very similar situation. Mm -hmm. And so she was able to hold space. She was able to validate the things that I was processing through and the feelings that I was having and, you know, all of the, no, you're not crazies. And I felt the same way and all those sorts of things. Um, and she was able though to, and just by virtue of, of who she is, she was able to not need to fix it. And I think that's probably one of the things that's so difficult about finding who is safe is that so often it seems like a problem that needs a solution. It seems like something we just need to apply some kind of medication to of some kind and then poof, it's gone. But this grieving process is long and the triggers just keep popping up as you, and you think you're past it. And then you just end up at right sort of what seems like square one, but it's really not. Right. But it, it's that sense that what makes a person qualified though, to be in this with you is not necessarily, do they have a degree though? If it's a professional, that's helpful, right? It, not that they are holding a pastoral title, but can they have compassion for you? And that often comes from people who have walked through the very same stuff that we have. Yeah, can, and, they, can they walk with you, not talk at you? Yes. Yeah. Those are two very, yeah, very, very important. Yeah. And so where you talk about death being a unifier, but so is our 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 pain, you yeah, know? So, and, yeah, and everything so about it is, yeah. How I was able to experience like unity with this person that I actually barely knew, but because of her having walked a similar road. So I had my um, my knees worked on a few years ago now. Feels feels like yesterday. It was a few years ago now. And the guy who worked on my knees, he does the knees and shoulders or, or for the, a professional football team. And when I got out 
of surgery. He walked me through, here's what rehab is going to be like. And here's what healing is going to be like. And I had said, Hey, I want you to fix me as though I'm one of your athletes. I want to be able to run around with my grandkids. And so I want to, even if it's a harder road back, I want to, I don't want to just bandaid this thing over. And during our, our, after surgery, after, you know, I came back a few weeks later and we were talking about what it's going to, what's going to happen from here. I said, Hey, would you trade me? And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, if I was on your team, would you trade me? And he goes, oh, for sure. Your knees are shot. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. And I said, so what are we aiming for here when it comes to health and to, to healthy? And that feedback was so important because I had a picture in my head that healed was I will be in eighth grade again, or I'll be in high school again, or I could jump up and almost dunk a basketball, or I could high jump six, six feet in, in a track meet. That's not going to happen. That's not what healing is going to look like. Healing is going to be, man, I can still run like crazy. I can lift and do squats and run around and do my MMA nonsense and Kung Fu. Everything. I can do that. And when it rains outside, my knees are going to ache. They just mm -hmm. are. I don't know why they just are. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to spend extra time stretching before I go do something hard. I got to do some different prep work now than I used to be able to. And I'm going to have to take extra care. Right. So on and on and on. We think that after grief, we, we have this toxic, toxic understanding of how the world works that we just want to get back to the way things were. We say that over and over. If I can just get back, if I can just, um, funny story for me, which is really depressing. It's just out of the touch new dad I was, but when my wife came home and said, Hey, I'm pregnant and we celebrated and it was all exciting. Then things started to change around the house. Then she started talking about it. Like that's going to be the kid's room and not your room to just go play guitar in. And that's going to, so in my head, without me even thinking about it, a clock started, which was when things get back to normal. Mm. And then we had my, my first son, Hank. We had Hank. And then a few weeks into it, I was like, oh, that's a lot of diapers. He's following through every day. I thought he was going to have like one or two a week. I didn't realize it was 20 a day. Right? <laughs> and man, food's expensive. And my wife's always exhausted. And when things get back to normal. When things get back to when we were just newlyweds and we could run around and we could make out all the time and we could, you know, spend money like idiots, we would just run around, right? And I'd never realized that season is over, period, end of sentence. Mm. My job now is not to try to get back to what was, it is to write something new with what I got now. And so the analogy that I've heard that is one of my favorite in the world is, um, after infidelity in a relationship, this is from Esther Perel. After infidelity, you can't go to New York and take all the steel and glass and dust and old gas. You can't sweep all that stuff back up and rebuild the twin towers that were knocked down. You got to excavate the whole thing, call some professionals, get a couple of crews in there, and you got to design and build something brand new, something that might be stronger than what was original and something that might be arguably more beautiful but it's going to be different. And it's a monument to the past and a directional point to the future. Mm. And so healing after grief, whether it's something little or something massive, healing after grief is not a return to normal. It is a complete and utter rebuilding and planning for something that is to come. And it's always going to be different than what you originally had. And if we can make peace with that, it goes back to owning reality. If we can own that, mm. then there's less additional trauma being like, well, it wasn't like last time. And this guy isn't like that guy. Of course he's not. Yeah. I'm going to lean into that because that's over, right? We live so much in our past instead of moving forward to the future. There are three words every abuse survivor must hear. God hates abuse. Plus One Parents has released a devotional for abuse survivors called Safe Haven, a devotional for the abused and abandoned. Safe Haven is a biblically-based guide to abuse, giving you the tools that you need to identify it, respond to it, and heal from it. Safe Haven is now available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats, and you can locate a link to purchase your copy down in the show notes. John, I want to ask you about trauma that has to do with relationship, though, where there's a letting go. So whether or not that person actually passed away or whether or not this is a person that the relationship has ended, there's a divorce and it, it, this person has moved on, whatever the case is, how can we understand what it is to accept reality, move towards the future while we're holding the tension of this thing that was and understanding 
where we're supposed to go with that? Most of what I've seen in that transition is this, is less somebody's hanging on to a person and more somebody's hanging on to a picture of what they thought things were supposed to be. I went into this marriage as a person who was not ever going to get divorced and hear this. Um, I've got someone who I love dearly in my life right now who can't wrap their head around. I'm getting a divorce like that. I'm not that guy yet. Yes, you, I mean, yes, you are. Mm -hmm. And here this is. And so often it's people less trying to hang on to the person. That person represents that picture that I had of myself and of my home and of my family and of my future, which is we had this perfect little house and this, this is what family was going to look like. This is what our, what our table was. My wife has our table planned for when our son brings his first girlfriend home from college. And I'm like, that, like you can have that in your head, but whatever you have, it's not going to be it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have that picture already. And then when this thing happens way downstream, we don't, we hang on to him or we hang on to her because she represents that picture. Um, I think divorce is, I'm not, I haven't been divorced. The idea of it sitting with people is so catastrophic because there is this inability to fully let go because they're still up walking around somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if you share kids with somebody, I still have to see that I got to hurt every all the time over and over again. And so there is this continually, I wish I had a better word for it, but you're going to practice reality. I'm going to practice. I'm going to practice. I'm going to practice. We've created a world for ourselves where every interaction is a Super Bowl. And if we don't do every interaction well, we're failures and we're losers and it's all falling apart. No, man, I'm going to do three out of four kid drop-offs. Awful. Or I'm going to fake it and I'm going to weep for, you know, Mm -hmm. uncontrollably. (laughs) I'm going to miss the first hour and a half of my time with my daughter because I'm Mm. weeping because I miss my wife. And I might miss her, but I really miss the picture of our family. Mm-hmm. I miss the, what the house felt like, the warmth of that home right? Yeah. Um, or the idea of that home. Some homes are incredibly cold, but yeah. uh, is that ringing true? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I think when we think about what, I think you just put this so well that it's not even necessarily really the person as much as the meaning that we attach to our time with them, the things that we're carrying away from that experience. And a lot of times, depending on where we're at in our grieving, sometimes all we can see is the bad but then sometimes all we can see is the good. And there is this nostalgia that sometimes can be damaging when we don't have a balanced picture. So again, we're not fully in reality because we're only seeing one side or the other. But the thing that I have found is that as as we do, though, continue forward, and that's just it, like the trajectory of life is going to carry us forward. So as we continue in that direction, the meaning of what the past was can change. And so as we talk about our stories and pulling the thread and things like that, we can actually go to that period of our lives. And there's a new narrative around what those years mean, depending on where we have gone to in the future. So as I have moved forward in my life and God has shown me all kinds of healing, all kinds of purpose, all kinds of community and goodness in my life that came out of this really difficult thing. Now the difficult thing doesn't have the weight on it that Hmm. it once had. But surprisingly, things that I discarded in the past that I was like, well, that was not cool. And that was, you know, I was seeing all the negative. Now the sweet parts are coming back that it feels like I got a part of my life back and it detached the emotions from the physical person. Like you said, detached that to the point where I'm able to continue to move forward. And I'm not re-experiencing grief and trauma every time I see this person, but I am able to pull out the family photo albums and not fall into a heap. I am able to feel the warmth of seeing my kids when they were little and remembering the good that was there. And that's trauma healing, right? That's your body not responding as though things are on fire. Oh my gosh, but it took lots of on fire times. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. yeah. And I don't want anybody to think like, I don't want to bypass that at all. It took literally, and this was 2020 for me, we were all shut into our homes and isolated. That was when Mm -hmm. I had almost probably the closest thing I've ever had to a nervous breakdown of months with me and my three kids in the house and just being completely shut off from all of what were my ways of avoiding grief, which were mm. being busy, being social, doing all the kid activities, all that kind running, of stuff. Running, all, running, yes, running, running. Yes. Yeah. And when all of it was gone, I absolutely melted down, but 
I will say it was the best thing for me because I was able to learn how to be present with myself, how to have compassionate attention for myself, how to turn to God and to begin to believe that there was going to be something beyond this. And it was where he restored, not just the things that I lost in the marriage, but the things that I never knew that I had even from my childhood. There you go. So yeah. where he was able to, God was able to say, I'm not just going to heal this section of your life. I'm going to take the whole thing. Mm. And, you know, so now it's like, now I, now I do have where I feel like I can move about my life without really experiencing much in the way of triggers. Mm. Um, sadness will catch me, but that's normal, right? Of you course. know, we're in a rough, <laughs> rough situation in this fallen world and sadness will catch us. Yes. Hey, so let me ask you this question. Yeah. Um, one of the most common things I hear from people who've um, had to navigate divorce is this. Yes, that person did X, Y, and Z. Yes, I did X, Y, and Z. And the marriage ended up, you know, where it ended up. And there's a deep sadness and a grief that's multi-layered and multifaceted and, you know, it impacts all these things. But the deepest grief and the deepest fear and the deepest terror comes from this. I lost trust in me. Mm. I thought that I knew how to pick somebody to hitch my wagon to. I thought I could tell if somebody was cheating on me. I thought Mm. I would know if fill in the blank. And I lose trust in me. And there's nothing more untethering than not being able to trust yourself. Because we all, whether we don't think we do or not, we do. We think we're all a little bit smarter, a little bit better drivers. The research tells us yeah. we all think we're, <laughs> we're better than average at most everything. Right. <laughs> but there's something untethering when you lose, like, oh, I thought I was right. And I yeah. come to find out this thing. Is that been, is that ring true with you and those you've talked to? You know, the thing that I find is that if you dig back far enough, there is some part of you that knew something and you didn't Mm. listen. So Mm. when you think about where this distrust for yourself came from, it wasn't at the point of the divorce. It was way earlier where you Mm. were getting that alert and you shut it down for one reason or another. Uh. And it was at that point that you started making compromises from what you knew to be perhaps deal breakers or what you knew to be healthy. And you started to make adjustments, tell yourself Mm -hmm. a different story. Maybe it wasn't really this and, you know, beginning the minimizing and that kind of thing. And so very often it, it, it is something that if you really look back, there are some indicators of a time where you could have made a different choice and you didn't. You so know, that's not even a loss of self. It's almost a violation of your own values. And like you, I mean, you, you yes. crossed your own boundaries. Huh? And, wow. and, and huh. it is this sense, though, too, of but this is where there's freedom in this. The reason we would compromise is because of some kind of self-rejection. And this is why I keyed in earlier on that loyalty piece. Sometimes we get to be so loyal to a fault that we will hurt ourselves Oh yeah. In the process. And that's why when we don't grieve and we're not in reality, then we keep denying ourselves. We deny our reality and we really deny what God is trying to alert us to, you know? And and I, I think we can't pull apart the fact that like for myself, for example, I was not walking with the Lord at that Mm. time, the way that I am now. Mm. And I was leaning on my own understanding as the Bible tells us not to, you know, Mm. and I, but I was not there was no wise counsel around me. There were, I was not sharing the things that I was going through and those kinds of things. So Mm. all we're talking about now, as far as having community around you and all of that kind of thing, usually there is something that we know is important now that we didn't have in place back then. But that's, like I said, what's liberating is we can say, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that anymore. (laughs) I'm going to have people around me. I'm going to listen to that voice of God when I hear it. I'm going to honor the needs that I have and not minimize it, not say, well, it's okay if I have a person who can't respect me because they, you know, sometimes get mad, you know, it's like, that's right. right, right. No. But we also learn then what is the value of our own life you know, to God and the value of, of our own um, journey that we would not compromise that again, that we would discover peace in the fact that there, that God is still with us in it. There are still things he has for us to do. We can still move forward, but I am not going to compromise that again, because what I have now came at a cost. Love it. Love it. 
Woo! There you go. <laughs> oh, John. So when it comes to though, you know, grieving and this sense of moving on or moving forward, some I think there's a there's an important distinction there between those phrases. Um, and you pointed to the fact that we have to be able to say that it's going to be different. There is an after now. There's before and there's after. When we lack though the confidence to understand where after could be and where we could go, how does grieving help us connect the dots to where we're headed? I think grieving mocks the phrase moving on. I think you move with. And before you grieve, you start to think of life without pain. You start to think of life where I'm not thinking about that guy anymore. I'm not thinking about her anymore. I'm not thinking about my kid anymore. And as you grieve, you realize that's not the case. That will always be the case. But you don't know what breathing is like. You don't know what laughing is like. You don't know what sleeping all all night without waking up is like on this side of grief. And so what grief does is it helps bridge that. It helps bridge that traumatized body that is spun up, that is running, that is fighting everything that is completely numbed out because it's frozen. It takes that body and helps bring it together with the mind that's in the present that says, this is real. And then now what? And now what will always like just using your world, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, You made humans with somebody. Mm -hmm. That person will be part of your life forever. And when divorce feels like your whole life is on fire and your soul's on fire and your heart's on fire, the idea that I'll ever laugh again with this person as a part of me sounds ridiculous, right? It can't even, I don't, they don't have a, a picture. I don't have a reference point for that, but it's when you wake up and it's, it's, uh, I like the analogy you're out to see. I mean, you're playing at the beach and you get swept away and you think you're drowning, you're drowning, you're drowning. And suddenly you stand up and you realize the water's only three feet deep. Yeah. That's how I, how I grief has, has happened to me. Cause there's days when I put my feet down, I'm not touching the water. I'm treading water just to hang in there. Mm-hmm. And then you do that this time and this time. And then you see your buddies, which is community is so important. You see them walking around and you can't find the bottom. And suddenly you stand up and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I can stand. He'll be with you forever. And that doesn't mean I don't love again. That doesn't mean I don't go mm-hmm. have fun again. That doesn't mean I go get on a roller coaster again. Right. Yeah. And so I think grief ties all that together, gives us a moment to, for our, literally our physical bodies to heal for that stuff to cycle itself through those fight or flight chemicals. It gives us an opportunity to re-engage our community and then ask that one terrifying question, what do I do next? John, how do you think we can lead our kids in this? Because this is something that, you know, especially when you consider the end of a relationship, again, whether it was that the relationship ended, there's a divorce, somebody died, whatever it is, there's an end point. Mm -hmm. But for our kids, as they're continuing to process this, as they grow and it means new things to them, as they develop how can we help to not just model this, but actually encourage them to embrace the grieving process as well? Uh, I think two big things guide um, my answer here. Number one, our kids can only be as well as we are. And so I can't expect my kids to handle things better than I'm handling them right now, which is a scary thought. It just is. And number two, kids don't listen to a word we say they watch us. And so if I want my kids to learn how to grieve well, I have to model grieving well. What does that look like um, on, a, on a tiny scale? Um, and I don't want to date your podcast here, but I'm, I'm about to. Um, the Russian invasion into Ukraine was a couple of days ago. And it hit me in a way that I was unprepared for. Um, some of the videos that came out with dads handing their daughters and their sons onto these trains and then turning around to head back. I mean, these were just businessmen, middle-class men and women who were just like, I guess we're in a fight now that I didn't pick, but here we are. And it hit me in a way that I started weeping on the way to work in a way I haven't, I don't know if I've cried like that in years. And I got home and I knew that I was rattled by this thing. I was staring, I've looked at my phone more in the last week than I have in the last year. No, no kidding. And I knew that whether I meant to or not, my son was going to absorb some of this. He's, he's 11 or 12. Um, dad of the year. I think he's, <laughs> he's 11 or 12. I don't I know. I think he's 11. He might be 12. Like he's 12. Yeah. He's, he's 11. He's 11, but 12 is coming up. 12, 12 year old birthday is coming up. Um, and I have a six year old little girl. And so I made kind of a big deal about it, but I went home and I said, Hey, Hank, you and I need to have a um, grown up talk upstairs. And so he came upstairs and I shut the door upstairs in the guest room. And I said, um, 
you've probably heard about what's going on overseas. Tell me about what's going on, what you've heard at school. And I let him talk first. And he told me, man, if I had just started talking to him about it, I would have missed 80% of what he already knew. And more importantly, the garbage he had picked up in Mm. his sixth grade with the sixth grade friends. And so I let him talk and then we talked about it. And then here's the important thing. I told him I was scared and I told him that I wept. And I told him that um, the thought of me having to put him and his mom and his sister in a car and letting him drive off where I protected the neighborhood, that's something that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. Yet here we are. Yeah. And um, I talked about how we're making a big deal in Europe, but it's also been going on in the Middle East for years. I, mean, I just tried to paint a broad picture for him. And then I said, so here's what we're going to do, because dad's not being called to fight today. Mom isn't either. And so we're going to be, we're going to find some ways to serve around the community. We're going to make sure we go outside and we're going to go play and we're going to laugh when we can, because not laughing isn't helping people over in Ukraine. Um, laughing is making sure we stay whole while we can here. And so I gave him two things. One, vulnerability. I gave him a picture of, oh man, dad gets scared too. And he's strong enough to say it out loud. My dad's a big, strong guy and he cries. And then dad gave me three or four things that we as a family are going to do with dad leading the way on how we're going to stay healthy. We're going to eat healthy. We're going to go move. We're going to play. We're going to be with each other. We're going to have friends over, et cetera. So I think those two things are really important. And I think the same things with divorce. If you get divorced and you're heartbroken, um, divorce, I mean, we know this. It really is tough on kids. And I think often it's because so much stuff is done in secret behind closed Mm -hmm. doors. Mm -hmm. And kids see parents close the door and they are left to their six or seven or eight or nine or 10 year old minds trying to figure out what they did, how they can solve this problem. It's not theirs to solve. So I think it's important for kids to see us cry and kids to see us brokenhearted and kids to see us hear us say, I miss dad and kids to hear us say, um, I love you and I'm holding you tight. And this is not, this is not anything that you had anything to do with. And I think letting them see us grieve is one of the greatest gifts we can give our kids. I love that you said that we, our kids are only going to be as healthy as we are because sometimes it seems like, well, if I give into this grief though, I'm not going to be available for them. I'm not going to be as strong for them or those kinds of things. But the truth of the matter is when we learn how to hold our story, take care compassionately of our needs, reach out where we need to, then those little griefs that you mentioned at the beginning, even if it's something that's like pizza, you know, or I think you said burrito, but basically that's very often how those little lessons in grief, grief are going to pop up. They're going to be these things that when we haven't handled our grief, they're going to be annoyances to us. They're going to be things that we're like, Oh, that's nothing, you know, and we're going to end up discarding our kids and basically doing the same things to them that were done to us. But if we handle our grief well, then when those little ones pop up, that's even just the smallest way of being able to say, yeah, I know I'm bummed out about that too. Or I'd be bummed out about that as well. You know, what, what, what can we do instead? You know, and it's just that ability to enter into those small opportunities that when the bigger ones come we will have language around the questions the, to ask. practice for the big ones. That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, because we'll have a familiarity though, with the questions that we've been asking ourselves. That's right. So good. John, at the end of every conversation, I ask each guest the same question. And it is, if there was just one thing that you would want a single mom to know, what would it be? Ooh. And you got to try to remember thing. your answer from last time and not answer the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would feel good if it is. Cause that means I'm, I'm staying on top Consistent. of it. Um, <laughs> It would be this one thing. I would tell a single mom this. I would tell a veteran who just got back from war. I would tell a Navy SEAL who's getting on for his first mission or her first mission. I would tell a single mom. I would hold her face and I'd look her in the eyes and let her know you're worth being loved. And you're worth being loved romantically. You're worth being loved by your kids. You're worth being loved by your community. You're worth being loved by your family exhale real big, drop my shoulders and say, you're worth being loved. Thank you so much for that, John. I really appreciate it. Would you tell the listeners about your new book and your resources and how they can connect with you? Sure. I got a a brand new book called Own Your Past, Change Your Future, which basically is (laughs) this. It's two PhDs in 10 years and my own falling apart and not learning how to grieve myself, um, all wrapped into one little book. 
and it is out in pre-sale now, and then it will be hitting the streets here in April. Um, my favorite thing about the pre-sale of this book right now is partnering with my friends at BetterHelp. My fear was that people are going to close this book and say, I'm ready right now. Then they were going to call a local counselor and they were going to get put on a six-week or six-month waiting list. And then it wasn't going to work with their insurance, et cetera. And so BetterHelp stepped up and said, hey, we believe in this book so much, we'll give a free month to people who pre-sell. So you can buy the book for 20 bucks and get a free month of therapy. And it's got, comes with some other stuff, but um, you can go to johndeloney.com and pick it up or ramseysolutions.com. And I'm, I'm proud of this, this one. Uh, this book was written for me and for my wife and for my kids and for my friends and community. Um, and hope that it's a blessing to folks out in the community. Absolutely. And I will include links in the show notes to make it easier for listeners to find where to access it and where to get the new book. It's fantastic. But I wanted thank to thank you, so you again for joining me, John. It was good to be with you. I'm grateful for you. Take care. If you'd like to hear more from Dr. John Deloney, check out episode 65, What Your Anxiety Is Trying to Tell You. Or if you'd like to learn more about trauma recovery, check out episode 90, Try Harder, Try Softer, Harnessing the Gifts of Compassion and Curiosity in Trauma Recovery with Andy Colbert. We'd love to invite you to get involved with the Plus One Parents community. You can join us on Facebook or Instagram at plusone.parents. And on Facebook, you can join our private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Also at plusoneparents.org, we are constantly adding new resources related to all of the topics that we cover here on the Christian Single Moms podcast. That's everything from parenting to dating to spiritual and emotional well-being. If you'd like to stay up to date on the new resources as we release them, you can join our mailing list there as well at plusoneparents.org. I'm so grateful that you're a part of this community and that you were able to join me for this episode today. I pray always that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.